Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message. Ah, good morning, Outpouring. It's good to be home. Good to be home. Um, listen, I love uh, you guys. I love your pastor so much so that I'm trying to dress like him. And um, he's had, he had uh, quite an impact on my life, even down to the fashion. No, but it's always exciting to be with you. And, um, man, as I was just listening to uh, that song, um, Give Me Jesus, you know, that question that was ruminating and permeating in my heart was, man, is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough? I mean, I think, you know, that's a question that we could all ask ourselves in light of um, this culture that we live in, always promoting things in excess and in addition to. And it's like um, we just want Jesus, um, you know, for the assurance of, of the hope of heaven, but um, everything else we got on lock. And um, the reality is David says it. You know, in Psalm 27 and 4, one thing that I desire of the Lord, and that's the thing that I'm seeking, that I will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Like, David just wanted one thing, and that was the presence of God. And so, um, in light of that reality, in light of this Christmas season, um, we should really get to a place to, to, and get in a space where we can just kind of be still and be quiet and ask ourselves, man, Jesus, are you enough? You know, I know we, we come in every Sunday, Sunday in, Sunday out, and it's kind of a routine thing that, that we do. But at the end of the day, um, does our heart pant after God like the deer pants after water? The imagery in Psalm 42 is of this this deserted wasteland, this forest fire, if you will, and there is no water, and, and the deer is panting, like literally starving, longing for, for the water. And the reality is we get a chance to be in relationship and communion with him, um, but is that enough for us, to have his presence? You know, ultimately, the, 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 the hope that we have is not just that we get heaven, but we get God. And uh, that's a beautiful thing. So um, it's in that spirit and that season that we come and we celebrate Jesus this morning. So I want to invite you to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. It's going to be our passage this, this morning. John writes there, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, all things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Amen. For just a few minutes, I just want to use as a subject for our, our, our time this morning, 
the life of the Christmas party. The life of the Christmas party. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Lord, we thank you that, um, that you're our father. And we get to call you father. Despite the uh, bad examples of earthly fathers who were maybe absent or uh, not present or uh, um, present physically yet not present emotionally, spiritually. Despite all that, Lord, you're our father. And it's in uh, the um, truth of, of that reality that we get to uh, come to you and know that your arms are wide open and that you're here for your children. Lord, your word reminds us that you're a, a good father who desires to give us good gifts. Oh, God, I pray that we would um, be able to uh, run to you and know that we are safe, know that we are loved, and know that we are um, accepted in you, that we are known fully and yet loved fully. And, Lord, that you have um, made it possible for us to even uh, have this relationship with you through the blood of your son, Jesus. Lord, we thank you for this Christmas season, this season of Advent that celebrates your coming, but also looks forward to your return. And Lord, we thank you that um, we have hope in the midst of all that we face, in the midst of all that we go through, um, that you're more than this world can offer, and that you, you truly satisfy the longings of the, the soul. God, the deepest longings of the heart are fulfilled in you. God, you told the woman at the well that um, if she drinks the water from the well, that she would be thirsty again, but the one who drinks from the living water would never thirst. In fact, Lord, when we drink of the living water, uh, your living water would well up in us and become a spring that would overflow. And so, God, we, um, we thank you for that. Lord, I pray that you would use your word to um, make us more like you, that we would walk in obedience to it, that it would shape us, that it would transform us and conform us to the very image of Jesus, your son. And Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart will be acceptable in your sight. Lord, our strength, our rock, and our redeemer, we pray this in your name. We pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. There's a, a movie about um, a story of a man who is um, pulled from the water. He's near death, um, but he's pulled from the water by this Italian fishing boat. And, and when he recuperates, um, this man is suffering from psychogenic amnesia without identity or even knowledge of his, his origin and background. And except for a range of extraordinary uh, talents in his fighting and his linguistic skills and self-defense that speak of his, his past, he sets out on a desperate search to discover who he really is and why he's being lethally pursued by assassins. Um, you may have seen this movie. It's uh, called The Born Identity. The whole time, uh, he's in search of his real identity. 
And in our passage today, we see very, um, a very uh, similar and familiar approach by the author John, who writes a very captivating gospel account of the life of Jesus. And what we find as we read through the gospel of John is that, is that John's chief concern for his readers and his audience is the identity of Jesus. He's concerned about the identity of Jesus. His main purpose is articulated in chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, in which he writes, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. And then he says these words, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the whole purpose. That's the whole point of John writing this book, this gospel, is so that you know who Jesus is and that in Jesus you find life. He wants you to know who Jesus really is. A.W. Tozer once wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I would add uh, this morning how we come to think and understand the person and work of Jesus is just as important. Who Jesus is changes everything about who we are, how we live in this world. C.S. Lewis uh, once remarked that uh, Jesus is one of three things. He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. He's either a liar, he, he, he pulled off the, the greatest hoax in all of human history, he's either a lunatic and worthy of an insane asylum, or he is who, in fact, he says he is. He's Lord. And so today, uh, it marks a special um, season in the life of believers and throughout uh, um, Christian history, we, we celebrate and have celebrated Advent season. It's marked the time when uh, there's this celebratory anticipation, if you will, about the coming birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jewish history, they, they had a sense for which, uh, in which that there was one coming who would be um, like, uh, like uh, the prophet. Uh, among them, they were looking for this one who would come and crush the, the head of the serpent, if you will. And so all throughout Jewish history, they're looking for this one who is coming to um, end the domain of, of darkness. And so uh, what we see about this season commemorates uh, the coming in three primary ways. One, it, it commemorates the coming of his birth. It points to this messianic prophecy being fulfilled in his birth but it also, uh, if you go to John 3, quickly John reveals something of, about this new birth where Jesus, through his spirit, comes into our hearts and transforms us. And so there's a, uh, a, a new birth for the, um, the sinner who is regenerated through the work of the Holy Spirit. But then it also commemorates his return, the second coming, which marks the consummation of all things, and Pastor John just alluded to the fact that all things will be made right when Jesus comes. But why celebrate if he's a, a liar? 
Why celebrate if he's a lunatic? The only reason we should be celebrating anything about this season if he's in fact Lord. If we're going to celebrate this Christmas season rightly, this Advent season rightly, we must recognize the significance of who Jesus really is. Before we get sucked into the whole commercialization of the holidays and enamored with the decor and, and listen, I, I love Christmas music just as much as anybody else. I, in fact, I wanted to play it uh, as soon as October hit. I wanted to crank it up. You know, you have all the movies, you know, and I'm an I'm a old school um, guy when it comes to Christmas movies. My favorite is It's a Wonderful Life. And, um, and you have all these things and the gifts and the materialism of, of this season. But we have to fight to, to, to refocus our attention on the essence of the season. Kirk Franklin wrote the, the song, the popular hit, Jesus is the reason for the season. So John presents three ways of seeing Jesus in this passage that help us understand who he is. Number one, he says he's eternal. He's eternal. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John is drawing his reader's attention back to the beginning. His Jewish readers would have understood this as um, in the beginning, this language that, that would be very familiar as they reflected on the Genesis account. And it's not uncommon. If you read throughout uh, the New Testament over and over and over again, you see these New Testament authors using Old Testament scripture. It's a very familiar thing that they're doing. Scriptures that are, are assigned to uh, uh, represent who God is for his people now being applied to the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's extremely significant. We see Exodus 3, 14, where, where God introduces himself to Moses at the burning bush as I am that I am. And Jesus would come later on and present himself in John 8, and 58 to the uh, religious leaders, by saying, before Abraham was, I am. The Hebrew names for God, Yahweh and Adonai, in Hebrew, find the direct translation of, of that, that term for God. Uh, the New Testament writers use the word Lord. It's a direct transliteration of the word Yahweh and Adonai, uh, for the, the New Testament writer. And then we see in Psalm 23, we see David uh, addressing God as what? The shepherd. I have no need to warn. And then in John 10, we see John do something, and Jesus announced himself as what? The good shepherd. So everywhere we are seeing these Old Testament passages for, for God being applied now in the New Testament in fulfillment of who Jesus is. That's significant, brothers and sisters. Because when we are, are, are talking about who we're worshiping, we have to uh, know who it is that we're speaking of. 
I know many people have a concept of who uh, they think they, they, they are worshiping, but the reality is if we're not worshiping um, the one who is revealed in Scripture, then he's another Jesus altogether. What John is getting at, what he wants us to pay close attention to is that when he says in the beginning, back even before these scriptures uh, came together, when there was nothing, there was the word. And so he's pointing out the eternality of the word, the verb tense of that word was, in the beginning was the word, is referring to the fact that the word already existed. That there is never a time that the word has not been. But the word has always existed. No one created the word. This is perhaps one of the most explicit passages uh, surrounding the divinity of Jesus in all of scripture. And John is not leaving any doubt about um, who Jesus really is. The word he, he, he says um, in the beginning was, and then he says the word. We see that word is capitalized, the Greek word logos. We see it's the, 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 the word that would have been understood not just by Jews, but also Greeks. And so for John, his audience is comprised of both. And so when he tries to articulate who Jesus is to both Jews and Greeks, he uses a term that's familiar to both. And so when he uses this word logos, he is using a word and a concept that's familiar to both groups. This mixed audience, if you will. The term is significant because it refers to Jesus, well, how do we know? In John 4, 1 and 14, later, John would write, the word became what? Flesh. And I think it's interesting that before John even gets there, he wants to um, unpack the identity of the word before we even comes in the flesh. So before we get the word became flesh and dwelt among us, we get in the beginning was the word. So if you look at the Hebrew background and their understanding of, of the word, the logos, there's, there's power in the spoken word as in uh, creation. When God is, is creating the world, he is speaking the world into existence. But then also he gives promises in the Old Testament, specifically the promise of Abraham that in you all the nations of the earth would be blessed. This is his word going forth to him. In Proverbs, we see the word of God as wisdom personified, that he is the first creation in, uh, uh, at wisdom as God's first creation or agent of all creation. God's controlling nature is dictated and determined by his word. The Greek background, several philosophers would have understood that um, the world was in flux and uh, the impersonal divine and unchanging logos held everything together. Plato says that the impersonal and unchanging logos kept the planets on course and determine the season. So, so we have uh, Greek philosophers, we have Hebrew um, um, historians looking at the word of God and seeing significance surrounding the word. 
And so for John to write this, his readers would have read this and understood, hey, this is pretty significant here. And in drawing their attention back to the beginning, he is saying the word existed from eternity past. See, as Spurgeon says, if you wish to know God, you must know his word. If you wish to perceive his power, you must see how he works by his word. If you wish to know his purpose before it comes to pass, you can only discover it by his word. And in, in a, uh, it's so interesting to me how, how we, we often want more of God, but we, we seldom want more of his word. The way that God gives us to know who he is. Listen, to grow in your faith is not some complex formula that's going to take you from one level to the next. It takes us getting in the word. There is no substitute for the word. David would write the longest psalm in the, all of the psalms surrounding the word of his love for the word of God. It's the word of God that, that is life to us. And this is where John goes. He is talking to us to understand how significant the word is. And if, if the beginning begins with the word and begins with God, then there is something about my existence that is linked to his. Meaning that I'm created on purpose with a purpose. This belief uh, about, about who he is transforms everything about who I am. And how I live, the truth of God has always um, a truth. Uh, excuse me, the truth that God has always existed is a truth that often the world denies. There are many differing beliefs among people that determine who uh, they are and how they live. But for those of us who have come to believe on Jesus, everything we know begins with God. So he's the one who, as a result, determines how we live. Because if everything is, or everything begins with him, then everything exists for him. What did it look like for the eternal word to exist in the beginning? That's number two. We see uh, John draws us to understand that the word is relational. He's relational. So one, he is eternal. Next, he, we, he draws us to the understanding that he's relational. When he says the word was, in the beginning was the word, then he says, and the word was what? With God. That word with simply means in the face of or face to face with, in relationship, if you will. There's a distinct personality, a distinct personhood to the word. 
in relation with God the Father. And as Christians, the identity of uh, Jesus is, is extremely important. It is so important that John wants his readers to be aware of the distinct nature of the word from God. Not that there are two gods, amen. We don't uh, espouse to a polytheistic faith. We don't believe in uh, multiple gods. We believe in one God who exists in three distinct persons. And I know it's, it's, it's a grand uh, uh, thought. It's a, it's a thought that we can't fully comprehend and understand. And, 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 and centuries of theologians who have better minds than me have spent years and years and centuries and centuries trying to communicate and articulate the mysteries of the triune God. But how has God revealed himself to us in the scriptures is the question. What we see is that the, 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 the eternal God who exists in the Old Testament, the same God who comes as the Son in the New Testament is now displaying the very characteristics that the Father displays in the Old Testament. And it's also attributed to the spirit who has also a distinct personality. So it's not enough to say that I believe in God. You need to know what God you believe in. And the thing about that is our culture leaves you to determine who you want to believe in, how you want to believe in him. And if you disagree with me, then you're canceled. But what happens when we submit our understanding of who God is under the authority of his word? Who gets canceled out? I, I forget uh, who, who said it, but I heard someone say that anytime me and God have a conflict, I'm always wrong. I'm always wrong. And so how... how who, who is this God that you are believing in light of the scripture? What does the scripture say about who he is? And this is what John is drawing our attention to. Why? Because at the end of the day, his whole purpose, his whole point in writing and communicating these things about Jesus is so that you uh, know that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life. There is no life outside of Jesus. Now, I don't want to get too ahead of time, but um, let me get back on my notes here. But it's important that we know who it is we're professing and believing in because many um, who profess belief do not profess the identity of the word. God has always existed, um, what we see, not only eternally, but he's always existed in community, in relationship within the Godhead. When he um, creates, he doesn't create because he's lonely. No, God is perfect in perfect community within himself. He doesn't need companionship. He has that in and of himself. 
but he also creates us with this capacity for a relationship as well. And so this is somewhat uh, what it means to be created in the image and likeness of, of God. Not that we are God, but we have and possess characteristics and qualities that are like he is. And so that communicates that we are like our father in these ways. And so the importance of community can't be overstated here. And I know many people are um, thinking that, that they want to do life in isolation. But, but isolation was not how you were designed to thrive and flourish in life. Listen, if, if God exists in community and relationship in and of himself, how do you think you're going to make it without community and relationship? There needs to be a uh, um, a, 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 a fighting for, if you will, community, a fighting for a relationship, if you will. And what we see in the fall in Genesis 3 is that our communication and our relationships are severed, if you will, number one, with God. And so now that we're separated from the author of life, it affects everything about how we relate to one another. And this is the reason why our relationships are the way that they are is because our relationship with God is all jacked up. Can I say jacked up? Okay. So this is why God says when he creates mankind, it wasn't good for man to be alone. Now I started thinking about that and I said, well, why is that not good? Because everything God did, he made, and he said, it is good. Was Adam lonely? Well, I don't, I don't know if necessarily he was lonely because God said it is good, right? When he created him. Man is in his pristine, perfect condition when God creates them. But why was it not good for man to be alone? And, and upon further review, God gives this mandate to be fruitful and to multiply and fill the earth with what? More image bearers. God wanted his glory to be filled and covering the, the face of the earth as the waters cover the sea. And so for man in his alone state, he is unable to act in obedience to the mandate that God has given him. So God, so man is it, 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 he can't fulfill the mission alone. Oneness breeds um, more fruit. He, he put multiplication in, in the DNA of every, every seed-bearing plant and every animal, and multiplication is happening. And so in order for God's um, earth to be filled with image-bearers, he says... Man is going to need a companion. And so he puts him in a relationship. And so this is why it's not good for man to be alone. We need friendship. We need relationship in order that we can fulfill the mission of God together. In his isolation, he's unable to fulfill this mandate that God gives for his life. So, you know, now more than ever, we live in a, a, a connected world because of social media. We can know what's happening on the other side of the world just like that. 
because of our access to, to social media. But guess what? Studies are showing that we're also more depressed and alone than we've ever been. Why, if the connection is the highest it's ever been, is the isolation and aloneness and depression high as it's ever been? That, 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 that just doesn't compute. It doesn't make sense. But what I think is, I think the, the social media age has taught us how to capture followers and not necessarily how to cultivate meaningful relationships. Right? And so we feel like we can operate um, in relationship through social media, but we don't necessarily know how to do life in person. And what happens is, on social media, you can get a filtered version of me. But when you got to do life with me day in and day out, Herb, you might not like what you see. You're not, you're not, you don't really get the, 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 the filtered version of my life when I'm in relationship with you on a daily basis. And so what we've, we've began to do is know how to to, to, to hold off on meaningful relationship. We don't know how to extend grace. We don't know how to operate with people who disagree with us. We don't know how to, how to be in relationship with people who look like, act like, vote differently than we do. Why? Because we don't know how to cultivate meaningful relationship. And it begins with our understanding about who God is. Relationships start with God. And because of sin, uh, severing that relationship, breaking that relationship, we don't really know how to exist in relationship with one another. But the glorious good news of the gospel is that God has done something about our relationship status. It's no longer complicated. It's no longer uh, complicated. It's no longer complex. He's broken down the dividing wall of hostility between those who are different. He's created a bridge, if you will, that brings us back into right relationship with God, but also brings us back into a relationship with one another. And so what John is doing is he's, he's setting up the, 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 the reality of how um, Jesus will enact this throughout the Gospel of John. And what do we see about what God does about the condition of mankind? John 1 and 14 says that he became flesh. So God doesn't sit up in his heaven, if you will, look down on mankind at our sinful condition and say, man, y'all just going to have to figure this thing out. He initiates the restoration plan. He leaves everything that was comfortable for him and enters into everything uncomfortable that has been corrupted by sin. And he puts on flesh, and in his putting on flesh, he, he does something about the relationship. See, what we can, what we can surmise uh, because of the incarnation is that we don't have a God who doesn't know what it feels like to not suffer because he subjected himself to the suffering. In fact, he, he experienced the ultimate amount of suffering. 
because the, the weight of all of our sin, the weight of all the sin of the world was placed upon him at the cross. He experienced temptation to the max because he resisted it to the max. So no one has experienced greater temptation than Jesus because no one has ever resisted temptation fully like Jesus. So no matter what it is that you and I face, the incarnation of Christ reveals that he understands. This is why his coming is, is to be so celebrated. This is why his birth is so um, Hopeful for those of us in this fallen world. Because Jesus does for us what we could not do for ourselves. He does something about this relationship issue. And ultimately, John shows us that he's unmistakable. He's unmistakable in, his, in who he is. He says in verse 3, all things were what? Created through him. And just, just in case that wasn't clear, he says, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In case I wasn't clear enough, let me reemphasize re that. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. So he is creator. In him was what? Life. And this life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. See, it's, 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 it's one of those things where uh, when you want to authenticate the, um, the validity of um, a painting from a, a painter in history, they have to submit the painting to an authentication process. And in order for um, that to happen, people who have uh, assessed the works of the, the painter are um, assigned to, to assess the painting. And it's not, it's not enough to just be familiar in the sense of, I know the painter. You have had to spend time with his actual work, in order to determine if something is valid versus invalid. And what John is saying is that uh, he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. John is saying, listen, we spent time with Jesus. He is the creator. He is the life. He is the light of men. What Moses does when he says in Genesis that God created the heavens and the earth, John would have you believe and know that when God is creating Jesus, the word is right there with him. The fact that he created shows he wasn't created. Jehovah's Witnesses would like to allude to the fact that, that because God is creator, he created Jesus as well. And they take uh, that from scriptures that allude that Jesus was the firstborn of all creation without understanding the, 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 the historicity of what it means to be the firstborn in Jewish culture. 
And so that, 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 that title of firstborn is not talking about his created uh, state, but rather his, his inheritance as the son, that all things are given to him by the father. Even though they mention these things, they don't, they don't even understand in the broader context of the Bible as a whole. They spin uh, it so he can deny the deity of Jesus. Yet, uh, the importance of this determination of his identity is crucial for anyone to be born again. Listen, if Jesus is not God, then Jesus can't save you. <laughs> Let's just call a spade a spade. If Jesus is not God, then there's still a problem and an issue uh, with our sin condition. And if Jesus can't save us from it, then, then brothers and sisters, I'm, I'm, eat, drink, be merry, because, that, that, I mean, this, this life is just all there is and there's nothing more. It takes someone who is 100% is God, but also 100% man, to do something about our sinful condition. Why? Because man sinned, okay? He offended a holy and righteous God. And, and, and because man sinned, a man had to pay the penalty for sin. And since uh, it was so egregious and, and the man had to be perfect, only God is perfect, Therefore, God had to become like we are so that we could become like he is. To confess him, to confess him as Lord and to believe that he is God changes everything. It's what he says to his disciples. Why do you call me Lord and you don't do what I say? Because if he's in fact Lord, then that means that you're going to actually be obedient to him. If you call him your Lord, to make Jesus the Lord of your life means that he is giving you new life, and that life is now, John says, the light of men. David would say elsewhere, your word is a lamp to my feet. It's a light for my path. John, John has this idea of, of Old Testament language reserved for God alone and applies it to Jesus. Psalms 36, 9, for the wellspring of life is with you. By means of your light, we see light. God is the one who illuminates our eyesight. Jesus is coming. He's giving sight to the blind. The whole book of John, you have this juxtaposition of blind versus seeing versus light versus darkness. All these things to communicate the reality of who we are outside of Jesus. That we see that Jesus is the only one who can give us life. And in him we actually see for real, for real. So, brothers and sisters, when he creates in Genesis, God breathes what? The breath of life into what he creates, and those things become what? Living beings. 
He fills creation with life. This is why sin is so devastating to the human condition and to the world, because it brings death. It's not natural to creation. Death is unnatural. Therefore, it can only be overcome by a supernatural life. And this is why Jesus is so important. He says as much in John 11 when he shows up to, to the funeral of Lazarus. The only one who could have done something, even Martha and Mary, indicate that, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Jesus says to them what? I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And, 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 and she says, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the son of God who comes into the world. There it is. There it is. Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God? Are you placing your faith and your trust in Jesus? Because look, the light shines. It's shining in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. The smallest light is able to expose the, the, the darkest darkness, for lack of a better way to say that. And the reason darkness exists is because of sin. This is the reason why we need Jesus. We're looking at the, um, um, the planets in the sky at night recently. And when you see it, you know it's not a regular, a, a regular light. When you see Venus up there and look at man, that's not. That's how you should be looking at Jesus. He's not just any old star in the sky. He's the light of the world. In him, there is no darkness at all. This is what John says in 1 John. And so for the light to come into our lives, to, to light our path, is for us to Believe that Jesus is who he says he is. So this is why it's important if you're hearing a message that comes from the word of God and it doesn't illuminate your sight in such a way that Jesus is the focus, then basically that preaching is in vain. If Jesus is not the, the subject matter, if Jesus is not ultimately the one that is exalted and lifted up, if Jesus is not the one that is celebrated, if it's more about you than it is about him, if it's more about me than it is about him, and all that preaching does is basically make me the center, make Jesus an add-on, if you will. But Jesus must be the center. And so John establishes the reason why we can approach this Advent season with great joy, great hope, and that is that Jesus' arrival inaugurates the end of the reign of darkness. His arrival means that you and me 
If we trust in the finished work of Jesus on our behalf through faith in him, sin will no longer reign over us. And it should also encourage us to celebrate the fact that he will return to set up his dwelling place forever among his people on earth. And I want to encourage us as we approach this Christmas to center our celebration around the one who's worthy of celebrating the word who was in the beginning, who was with God, and who was, in fact, God. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website, outpouringorlando.com, to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you. Have a wonderful week.